Good morning, Echo family. My name is Pastor Brian Griswold, and uh, I am glad to be here this morning. Yeah, we're going to be continuing our study in the uh, faith for the other six days. And um, if you haven't been here uh, for the rest of this series, the previous parts, don't worry about it. You're going to catch right on. This is a standalone kind of message, but it does tag into what we've been talking about in terms of having faith that carries us through life. Last week, Pastor Phil spoke about the faith that uh, is being able to look into a person's heart, not into their outside, so that we move from judgment and prejudice to uh, complete unconditional acceptance of a person, not of the sin, but of the person, right? And today I am continuing the series on faith from the book of James and looking at the faith that comes as a result of the fruit of a relationship with Christ. So James, real quick, who was he? He was the stepbrother of Jesus, right? Talk about blended families. So James uh, had the same biological mother, but not the same bio father. Can you imagine the conversation that must have gone on at some point in James's life? Because James's father was Joseph, but Jesus's father was... Right, Mom, who is Jesus' brother? Well, son, uh, that would be God. Really? (laughs) I mean, it must have been a really interesting conversation. But Jesus was the oldest brother. And I don't know how many of you have older brothers or sisters, the ones, you know, that come first and can do everything right and are the high achievers, you know. But, um, you know, James and his brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us, really didn't accept for a long time that Jesus was the Son of God. And, you know, in all honesty, I can really relate to that. But at some point in Scripture, we discover that James has become a believer, and he is now addressing the Christians. And he is, in this book of James, uh, instructing Christians on how to live, how to live a life that uh, looks like Jesus and that in fact is filled with the vivacious abundancy that Christ promises us. So uh, before we read our scripture, and it should be right up there on the screen here in a second, James 2, 14 through 17, I want to just define faith for us in this moment. I am not a biblical scholar. I'm not even good at Greek. I think I took one Greek class, and I passed with good, good grades, but I, I was so glad it was just one class of Greek, right? So this Greek word for faith here is, say it with me, <laughs> pestes, right? And so when you hear this word pestes, this is what I want you to understand it means. It means that A person with pesties has the conviction of the truthfulness of God. That he will do the right thing at the right time in the right way. That's what we're talking about when we say faith. We're talking about pesties. That kind of faith. Okay? So here we go. Dear brothers and sisters, what's the use of saying you have pesties, you have the conviction of the truthfulness of God, if you don't prove it, by your actions. What kind of pesties, conviction of the truthfulness of God, that kind of pesties can't save anyone. Suppose you see a brother or a sister who needs food or clothing and you say, well, goodbye and God bless you. Stay warm and eat well. (laughs) But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does it do? So you see, it isn't enough just to have pesties, that conviction of the truthfulness of God, Because that doesn't show itself by good deeds. Sorry. That that faith that doesn't show itself by good deeds is no faith at all. It is dead and useless. All right. When we talk about this kind of faith, it might raise a little question that I want to get right out of the way here, okay? In different versions of the Bible, I don't know, I'm old school, I started out with King James, and then in Bible school I moved to NIV, and I have stayed true to the NIV until Trinity Life went to the NLT, and so I'm a conglomeration of everything. But in those older versions of the Bible, and they're all good, um, 
when you read these scriptures, there could be some confusion because it says without works, faith is dead. And so part of you might be thinking, wow, what does that mean? What is James saying? I've got to work my way into heaven? Um, maybe some of you have been brought up in a belief system where works are important to gaining entrance into heaven. On the other side, some of you might be thinking, well, you know, maybe I can just confess Christ as Savior and then I don't have to worry about anything ever again. I want to settle this little debate in your head that when Paul and James are both using the word works, Paul primarily in the book of Romans and here in James, they're talking to two different audiences, okay? Paul is really addressing the Christians that are coming out of the Judaic faith, and he's addressing the legalism that people wanted to impose on Christianity. He's talking about the root of salvation, where James is really talking about how to believe and how to, um, the lifestyle, the behavior. James is talking about the behavior and the lifestyle. Paul is talking really more about the root of salvation and how we do it. And so let me just put this argument to rest. I know I have done it. No biblical uh, exegetical justice here. And for that, I honestly recommend that you see Pastor Stewart because he is the man on this subject, right? All your emails go right to Stewart, you know, this week. <laughs> here it is. Here's the wrap-up from Ephesians. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Okay? It's the faith that we're addressing today, and that little, little wondering that you might have had about having to use works to get into heaven. No. It's by grace, through the conviction of the truthfulness of God in Christ, not by any works that we get saved. So why are works important to faith? That's what I want to address today, okay? And to start this off, I want to read you a little uh, story, true story, um, from back uh, 320 AD, all right? So if you could just uh, come with me back into that time. You have Constantine in the West, and you have a guy uh, by the name of Licinius in the East. Constantine, remember, wanted to, everybody to become Christians, and he finally made that uh, decree. Licinius, on the other hand, not so much. In the winter of 320 AD, when Licinius was the emperor of Rome, there was a band of elite soldiers known as the Emperor's Wrestlers. These men were the best athletes in the Roman amphitheater and the, the bravest soldiers in all of the Roman army. They wrestled for the emperor against all who challenged them. And before each contest, they would stand before the emperor's throne and cry out, We the wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. It was midwinter, and there was a rebellion that waged in France. And the emperor sent for his wrestlers and told them to go to France to end the war that was raging on. And this brave group of wrestlers left Rome under the command of Sempronius, something like that. I'm going to settle on Sempronius, the centurion. While in France, rumors spread to Rome that many of the emperor's wrestlers had become Christians. And when news of this reached Licinius, the emperor, he sent a message to Sempronius, and he said that he had made this decree. If there be any among your soldiers who cling to the faith of the Christian, they must die. Well, it was the dead of winter, and Sempronius received the message while his soldiers were camped beside a frozen lake in Gaul, in France. And Sempronius assembled his troops, and he asked, Are there any among you who cling to the faith of the Christians? If so, let them step forward. Forty soldiers immediately took two steps forward, saluted, and stood at attention. Sempronius was stunned. He had not expected so many soldiers and such select ones. They were his finest and his best. So Sempronius said, 
Until sundown, I shall give you time to recant and to deny your faith. And at sundown, the soldiers were again assembled together, and Sempronius asked, Who still clings to the Christian faith, even if that means death? Again, 40 soldiers stepped forward and stood at attention. Sempronius pleaded with them long and earnestly to deny their faith, but not one soldier would deny Christ. Sempronius did not want these men he loved, respected, who fought side to side together to die at the hands of their fellow wrestlers. So he had them stripped naked. And Sempronius reluctantly said, The decree of the emperor must be obeyed. So you shall stand out on the frozen lake, exposed to the elements until you freeze to death. Should you recant and deny Christ, the fire will remain burning on shore. And by returning to the shelter of the fire, you will be denouncing Christ, and you also shall live. The forty soldiers, stripped out of their clothing, fell into four columns of ten each and marched toward the center of the frozen lake and to their death. But they cried out what they had once chanted in the arena as they marched. Forty wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. All night long, Zimbronius stood by his campfire and watched those forty brave wrestlers out on the ice as they so lowly succumbed to the elements. As they grew weaker and weaker, their cry grew fainter and fainter. Forty wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. As morning drew near, one figure, overcome by exposure, left the frozen lake and came to the edge of the fire and renounced his Lord. And Sempronius could hear faintly from the frozen lake, 39 wrestlers, Wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. Sempronius was moved. God touched his heart. And Sempronius ripped off his cloak, helmet, armor, and clothes, and ran down upon the frozen lake, and huddled with his men. And again they chanted, Forty wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee, the victor's crown. I'd like to suggest that the big idea for this morning is that real faith that identifies us as having been redeemed is accompanied by action. That's what we're talking about. That the kind of pestis, that, that conviction, that the truthfulness of God will sustain all things, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that what he'll do, he'll do. He'll do the right thing at the right time in the right way. Needs to accompany our faith. We need to put some walk to our talk, in other words. Okay? And so let's talk about this a little bit. Let's talk about how this gets fleshed out. Faith that is the fruit of our relationship with Christ will be seen in different ways. Real faith is not just something you say. It will show up in a change of three things, our attitude, affections, and our actions. But let me just say this. Um, one of the things is true. Have you noticed when people come into a relationship with Christ that their language changes? Right? It's one of the first things you kind of notice. Um, <laughs> I remember when I was first being discipled, my language was not cleared up. And I was sitting somewhere right down there because the guy that was discipling me thought that, you know, front of the church was best. And uh, I was in an Assemblies of God church, and I had come out of the Episcopal church when I was in church back as a kid. And so I expected the pastor to come out in robes and, you know, a cassock and stuff. And when he came out in a business suit, I said, what the mm? <laughs> is this? Where is this robes? And, uh, of course, the guy that was discipling me, poor Mark, he just oh, died in his seat. And there were some ladies in the back of the church just looking at me, marveling at what God was doing in my life. 
they were hysterical laughing. And I'm not sure if it was because Mark was so embarrassed or because I was so candid and so unaware of what I was like. I was really rough. And uh, those ladies were, were just a godsend because they stood by me. So did Mark, by the way. And uh, my language changed. So our faith will be reckoned not just by what we say, although that is part of it, but you'll see a change in attitudes. What are some of the attitudes that change as a result of a relationship with Christ? How about entitlement? You ever notice people that uh, feel entitled? Sometimes it comes with wealth. Sometimes it comes with intelligence. Sometimes it just comes with, like, where are you getting that attitude from? But the attitude says, I deserve this. I'm owed this. Now, listen, I'm going to be in a, a, a marathon next week, okay? So I've been working out. I've been gearing up for this thing. And I'm not running. I am walking as part of a four-man team, right? So my stretch is only seven-plus miles. But as you're out on the NCR, you see a lot of people dressed up in their running gear. And entitlement occurs to me this way. Spandex is not a right. It's a privilege. (laughs) Get it right, people, you know? But some people feel entitled. No, I'm a runner now. I get to wear the gear. No, you shouldn't. (laughs) Oh, arrogance. I'm better than you. Like uh, prejudice, like Pastor Phil addressed last week. When people come to Christ, arrogance is one of the first things to begin to melt away. No, I'm really not better than you. As God begins to bring up our character defects so that we can work on them and become more like him, that really has a hard time sticking around. And when you're in relationship with Christ, you are definitely going to lose that kind of an attitude. It comes with pride, doesn't it? It's very difficult. You know, James comes against pride. And he says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that song that we sang today, Your Grace is Enough, it is. That grace will draw you as you realize that really what God is asking for is for you to give up the attitude of control. How many of you would join me in saying, I'm a control freak. I love control. I love to be in control of what happens around me, what happens in me, what happens through me, what happens in the universe. As a matter of fact, if I could, I would control the universe. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Here's what I'd like to suggest. When you enter into a relationship with Jesus, the whole idea of entitlement, arrogance, pride, and control begins to take a back seat as you realize you really, you know, how's that working out for you? How's, you know, being in control of the universe doing? When you realize that there just aren't things, you you can't control everything. And what Christ is really asking is he's saying, would you just surrender to me? Would you come to me and, and just lay it down? It's the difference between being willful and being willing. How many of you say you've got a really strong will, that you can do this, that, uh, you know, listen, I can overcome this adversity. I can, I, I've, I've got a will of, of iron. Okay, how many of you have successfully done that? I have. There have been things that I've done in my life that come from having a strong will. But that's not what Christ is looking for. He's looking for a willingness for us to come to him and recognize that he's got the power, that he's really the ultimate person in control. And that as we come and surrender our lives and our hearts to him, something begins to happen. We take on more of the image of Christ. We take off the old man. We put on the new. And our attitudes begin to change. Our affections begin to change. What do you value? What do you value most in life? No judgment, just but what do you value, you know? What is really important to you? I suppose the big three, right, would be money, power, sex. These are the things that human beings tend to value a lot, right? I know that when we're talking about finances, it used to be said, although not so much anymore in the digital age, Show me a man's checkbook and I'll show you where his affinity lies, where his affections are. I'll tell you, I'll show you what's important to him. Now, I guess we couldn't do checkbooks so much because we'd have to go to 
your digital, what, statement? Something like that. What is the root of all evil? Mm, get it right. It is the love of money, not money itself. How many of you know people that are incredibly wealthy? Right? I am not incredibly wealthy, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, actually, the more I am around wealth, the more I understand if you're going to be responsible with it and you need to steward your wealth, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of care and a lot of brains that I just don't think I have, honestly speaking. But um, there's a lot of people with wealth that really love it and their whole ambition in life is to go after it and they've gotten it. And when you compare the people that really are like that with the people that have honestly earned their wealth and kind of come into it and are very grateful for it and are good stewards and are givers, can you see the difference? Family members. One family member who makes $4 million a year gives nothing to his siblings' kids at Christmas except a $25 gift certificate to Target. Guy that makes over $4 million a year bequeaths incredible gifts to his extended family. The love of money, having money. Where your affections lie is very important. Power. I like power. I like being in a position of being a good leader. I don't know that I really like power for power's sake, although I I understand my human makeup would tend to go that way if given the opportunity. Um, in preparing, I came across this little, uh, little statement um, from a guy who was a baron back in 1887. He was writing a cleric, and he said something that goes like this. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think he had his, his finger on the pulse of humanity, on, on sinful man, you know? And he was German, And so it made me think about Hitler coming not too far after he had written those words and kind of like giving us a good illustration of what absolute power can do to a man. You know, where does that power belong? Does it belong with us or does it belong with him? The creator of the universe, the designer of the universe that really designed it all. I trust to give it to him. Power, you know, do yourself a favor. I'm going to Haiti in in a couple of weeks, and so I know I'm going to experience this. But if you really want to understand how much power you don't have, go to a third world country where where you don't spend the language, where you don't speak the language. You don't even understand the currency. You get out, they drive on the other side of the road, and they do it communally. They don't have stoplights or street signs or markings on the pavement. Trust me you will understand you have no power when you get into that cab or that little rickshaw or that little go-mobile thing. You'll just, you'll understand. It's good to recognize that uh, our affections um, might not need to be on power. And sex, look, I understand uh, sex is wonderful and I trust that you do too, but anything of a good thing, uh, too much of a good thing can be bad. And uh, I deal a lot with sexual addiction in my practice and I will tell you, that what God has made as a beautiful and wonderful kind of a gift to share absolutely can become twisted and abused. And um, So let's just land this plane and say, where do your affections belong? What does the Bible tell us? It tells us to set our affections on things above, on Christ, not on the things of earth, just to keep that balance. You know, I got converted by reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And of course, in those allegorical uh, stories, who is Christ? He is, he's a lion. So here we're singing that, you know, he's living inside of us. He's roaring like a lion. And so that, that illustration was not lost on me. And it was very easy for me to put my affections on Christ. That is what we're talking about. The kind of faith that reflects a relationship with Christ will be balanced by a continual effort on your part to set your affections on things above. And you know, it's not a one-shot deal. It's like an all-the-time deal to recalibrate and to check where your affections are. It's your attitudes will change, your affections will change, and your actions, of course, will change. But let's leave that for a little bit uh, down the road here. 
Um, the scripture that goes along with that little segment is, not all people who sound religious are really godly. They may refer to me as Lord, but they still won't enter the kingdom of heaven. The decisive issue is whether they obey my Father in heaven. In other words, real faith is not just something you say. It'll show up in your attitudes, in your affections, and in your actions. Number two, real faith is not just something you feel. Okay, pestis, this this conviction about the truthfulness of God, this conviction that God is going to do the right thing at the right time in the right way, how deeply do you believe it? Of course, we could look at the wrestlers, uh, but I don't think that I'm going to join any kind of a foreign legion troop and wear armor and, and be faced with that. However, um, I do see uh, first responders in my practice as a th- psychotherapist, and so I have been uh, thrust into the position of learning a lot about how uh, first responders respond to PTSD, to, to a continual exposure to trauma, it, particularly firefighters. And so I've been talking to this one firefighter guy, and uh, <clears throat> he was talking about how in the fire companies... He's a professional paid uh, firefighter. So he gets paid to do what he does 24-7. But there's also this group of firefighters who are volunteer firemen. And so he belongs to one company and the volunteers belong to another company. And they are in a particular geographical location where it's pretty crazy. They see a lot of... They're not just answering fire calls, right? They're any kind of emergency calls. So they're doing a lot of EMT stuff. There are a lot of gunshots, a lot of stabbings, a lot of nasty stuff. Car wrecks with dismembered individuals. It's horrible. And so he was telling me about how when 25 of them or so show up to a fire, particularly not a residential fire but a commercial fire where the layout of the buildings are confusing and really anything bad could happen, that everybody's hopping off the engines and they're getting their hoses and they're all this is big commotion about, yeah, we're going to fight this fire. And they get to the entrance of the door and he says, the scariest thing is when you get inside and it's quiet because there's only really two, three, four of you that are in that fire. Everybody else is outside by the door because although they want to say they're firefighters, because they want to wear the title of firefighters, they're just volunteers. They don't really understand all of that. They don't have the conviction that if they go out, they have a really good shot of coming, if they go in, of coming out again. And so he was telling me, like, you know, quiet fires like that really scare him a lot. He was in there recently with just his, uh, his officer, just the guy that's in command of his, 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 his deal. And they were fighting this fire. There were three of the volunteers that had gone in. Real faith is not just something that you feel. You can feel like you're all that in a bag of chips, but until you put some action to it, what are people going to think of you as you live out your life as a Christian? What about it in your business? What about in your family? What about where you are living out life? You say that you're a Christian. You feel like you are. But when people look at you, what kind of a conviction are they going to see that says you believe in the truthfulness of God. That God will do the right thing at the right place at the right time, in the right way. Are you backing up your feelings with action? Jesus cites this in Matthew 9, where he's going throughout the cities and he's, he's just feeling so sad for the sick people. Well, he, he not only feels sad for them, but what does he do? He heals them, right? Kind of like a couple of Sundays ago. I don't know if you were here, but Pastor Phil asked for people to come down to this altar and just to pray for them in faith that God would heal them. That was pretty extraordinary. How many of you were here for that? How many of you thought that was putting some walk to some talk, right? He had no idea what God was going to do. He had no idea whether people who responded would be healed or not. He just felt that he needed to step out and put some walk to the talk. We had been talking about the Holy Spirit, and we had been talking about supernatural things, and so Phil did. He didn't just feel it. He did it. And was that encouraging? It was to me. I'm pretty sure it was encouraging to the people that got prayed for. So real faith is not just what we say. 
It's not just what we feel. It's putting walk to our talk. Real faith is not just something that you think or believe either. Okay. This is where we're going to parse this thing out and we're going to talk about real faith is more than just assent. We need to give it consent as well, right? Intellectually, how many of you believe that you're Christians right now? You'd say, I'm in the, I'm in, I'm in the, the deal. You might be, the way we do here at Echo, is we think of it as a uh, kind of a continuum, right? You could be on this, being totally atheistic, but you're here, maybe because you're here with family or for whatever reason, you're curious, you're, you're kind of seeking, you're wondering if really what you believe is true. We say that you're growing spiritually. You're in that relationship with God, even though you're on this side of the spectrum. And that growing spiritually is demonstrated by moving one incremental step at a time towards having a conviction that the truthfulness of God is really true. And as you move along that continuum, you'll begin to not just give intellectual assent, but you'll eventually give consent to it. And what you believe and what you think will be mirrored in your actions, right? Okay, so I have right here, what did you think about this ukulele player, huh? Come on now. That first one, Chris, where are you? Was a perfect blend of Kentucky and Echo, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeehaw! I was like, yeah, that was a good beat. I liked it. Have a stool. Looks like a good stool. Looks like it probably could carry my weight, right? It carried her weight. We all can believe that this stool will work. Correct? We can give assent to it. It's true. I think it'll hold me. And now that I've kind of looked at it and I've examined it. Okay, Ikea. Mm, I don't know. That's some doubt there. But, you know, it feels good. Ikea's not really all that bad. It's, you know, it's fairly new. It still has a little plastic thing on it there. I weighed in today at 243 pounds, though. Well, you know, I'll just test out the water. Until I actually come and I take a seat on this. Is anybody else nervous? (laughs) Why would I actually be nervous about this? (laughs) No, better yet. (laughs) Billy, or I mean, Joe, right? Who's big in here? Who's, who's close to 300 pounds? We've got something that's really big. In. Would you like to come and have a seat? Would you like to test this out? You know, no. He says no. He doesn't want to. Why? Because maybe, just maybe, this is a trick, right? Maybe there's something about this chair. You saw her sit on it. Nothing has changed. But until I actually sit on this thing, my talk is just talk, isn't it? Unless there's consent... It's really not faith, is it? So here's the deal. Real faith, the faith that sees us through the other six days, is faith that's walked out. It's that conviction and that belief in the truthfulness of God that we actually put some feet to. We actually are able to sit confidently in this and rest in this truth. And it's not just in what we say. It's not just in the way we feel. It's not just in what we think or believe. It's in what we do. Where are you at on this continuum in what you do? And we could look at it in terms of your giving, like we took an, we received an offering today. Um, and, you know, different people are at different places in terms of where they're willing to give in a church in an offering. But if your affections are over money, that's going to be a big place for you when you're willing to give, right? Where are you stuck today in what you do or don't do that inhibits people from looking or inhibits your faith? So that when people look at you, they're not really seeing the kind of faith that draws them to this awesome God. Two real quick stories and then we're going to wrap it up. That was actually kind of nice to sit on that stool. 
Commitment to God will cause us to move out in three different areas. When we put some walk to our talk, when we recognize that real faith is something that we do, not just feel and sense. Commitment to God will cause us to sacrifice our pride. I put this first because commitment needs to start with the realization that we can't do it all, certainly not by ourselves, but rather it's in a relationship with Christ. How many of you came into your relationship with Christ because of a crisis in your life, because of a huge deficit, because really you weren't able to control what was going on around you? How many of you just kind of fell into your relationship with Christ? How many of you were born into your relationship with Christ? (laughs) Do we have any church people here that were born into the church? Yeah, a couple of us, right? Listen, even us that were born into the church, there comes a place where we need to make it our own, right? And we need to put down what we've been taught. And as a parent, you just hold your breath in that moment as your kids put it down. And you hope that it'll just be a momentary putting it down, right? That they'll come to their senses and believe that it's really all true. But sometimes it takes years. They put it down, they walk away, they try out life. Eventually, hopefully, they figure out that really what we've been saying all along is true. Maybe they pick a different flavor, a different kind of perspective, but until their pride is really released, they're not going to uh, have such a great relationship with Christ. Pride turns to humility, willfulness to willingness, and stoicness to surrender. I'll tell you what, um, how much pride did those wrestlers have on, on the frozen lake there? I I was envisioning what it must have been like for them out on the middle of that lake. First of all, they're naked, and, you know, everybody else gets to see all that. But then, you know, there's not much pride in all that. I remember when I was going through chemo and radiation treatments for cancer. There's not a lot of dignity in that, you know what I mean? You kind of splayed out there, and all the residents and the techies are walking back and forth. I mean, you know, dignity is out the window. Pride needs to go, just like it did for these soldiers on the ice, just like it does for us at some points in our life. Commitment to God will cause us to sacrifice our pride. Are you ready to sacrifice just that one more little bit of pride? Commitment to God will cause us to sacrifice our future, if need be. In Genesis 22, there's a great story about Abraham who is asked by God to sacrifice his miracle baby. This is the baby that he and his wife had like when they were 90 and 100 plus years old. I mean, never mind that they were able to conceive. They were able to, you know, have fun together. They were able to actually come together. It's pretty miraculous, 90-something years old. I was like, hmm, God, can I get me some of that, please? (laughs) And now, all Abraham's future is wrapped up in this miracle baby. This baby that they had prayed and agonized over having for so long. And God asks Abraham, you really love me? You really want to be obedient to me? Sacrifice your son. As a psychotherapist, I have to be honest. (laughs) I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what if I saw Isaac in my office? You know what I mean? So you almost have to suspend your, your belief about what that would look like today because Child Protective Services would have been all over that, right? I mean, it just wouldn't have happened. So this is Old Testament, and, and Abraham is obedient, and he takes his son as a teenager, flesh and blood, and he says, come on, bud, we're going to go sacrifice. God's asked us, okay, Dad. All right, you know, let's get the wood, let's get the donkey, let's go. Okay, we got all this stuff then to make the fire and the altar and stuff, but where's the offering? Oh, Abraham, you know what? When the time comes, God will supply that for us. And they go off on this like three-day trek. I've heard a lot of father and son trips. In fact, my dad and I took a couple of, that were pretty cool, but none like this. They finally get there, they get to the top of the mountain. And I don't know how he does this because Isaac must have not put up a lot of resistance. But the Bible says that when the time came, they built the altar, they laid out all the wood, and then Abraham ties up his son and puts him on the altar. 
I've done a lot of imagining about conversations, but this particular one broke my heart. I don't know if it's worse being from Abraham's side of the fence or, or Isaac's. Dad, what's going on? Why are you doing this? Well, son, I'm trying to be obedient to what God has asked me to do. I don't know. I don't know how that conversation went. All I know is that Abraham was willing. And he took out the knife. He raised it over Isaac and was going to come down. And he was going to take out his son's life with the belief. And this is the only way I can rationalize it. That Abraham must have believed that if he was going to sacrifice his son, that Almighty God was going to do the right thing at the right time in the right place and resurrect his son. Because the future hope of Israel was in his son. So his conviction, his faith, was so strong that he was willing to actually go through with this thing and an angel kind of, you know, stays his hand by saying, whoa, whoa, don't do this. Now we know you believe. It's good. It's all cool. And it's attributed to Abraham as righteousness. Real faith is going to be something that we do. It's going to be the willingness to sacrifice our future going forward. You see, he was trusting God, Abraham, so much that he was willing to do whatever God told him to do. His faith was made complete by what he did, by his actions. And so it happened, just as Scripture says, that Abraham believed God, so God declared him to be righteous. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are made right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. We're just talking about how we move from here to here in our relationship to God, how we're made more and more righteous, how we're being made right with God. Sometimes it'll call us to sacrifice our future. And finally, commitment to God will cause us to sacrifice our lives for the sake of others. James goes on to talk about Rahab, the prostitute. If you'll go back with me in the Old Testament, you remember that Moses sent out some spies to the promised land, right? Hey, go out and spy out the land, see what's going on. And so two of the spies went, and I've had some wonderings about this too. But they show up at Rahab's house. And uh, they're there and they recognize that they are being sought after and that the enemy is closing in. And uh, Rahab is told, listen, we need to, we need to hide. You need to, you, need to, you need to hide us here because if you don't, we're, we're going we're gonna to be killed. We're going to be taken out. And so... What's going on here is that Rachel is talking to these two spies and she's saying, you guys are with the, the Israelite guys, huh? Man, we are so afraid of your God. He does some incredible things. He really does. Listen, I'll tell you what. This could cost me my life. This could cost the life of my family. But I so reverence what I see in you and the way that you respond to your God that I'll tell you what. I'll hide you if you'll promise to save me and my family. The spies said, okay, we'll do it. Here's what you do. You hide us, and then you let us go. And I'll tell you what, we're coming back. And when we do, there's going to be a whole mess that happens here. So just put this scarlet cord outside of your window so that we'll know that when things really shake out, not to disturb. And you can put all your family in here, and we'll, you'll be safe. And so Rachel does, or Rahab does. She hides them. The bad guys come. They can't find them. She says, oh no, they left and they went that way. The bad guys leave. She talks to the spies. She says, now go that way and remember your promise. And so the rest of the story goes. They went back. They came into the promised land and Jericho. Remember that march, right? Isn't that the right story? Am I got the right story, right? They walk around until finally they all scream and the whole thing comes down. Except for what? That part where Rahab and her family are. Sometimes faith is going to demand that we even come to the place of giving up our lives. I would like to believe that we're moving in that direction. I can honestly tell you I have no idea what I would do if I was asked to recant my faith or freeze on a lake or like so many brothers and sisters around this world who are being martyred today for their faith? I don't know. I'd like to think 
that I would be willing to do that, but if it came down to somebody putting a gun to my wife's head and saying recant or I'm going to pull the trigger, what would I do? I don't know. I'd like to think that at that point, I have a conviction in the truthfulness of God that he will do the right thing at the right time in the right way. But I don't know. All I can say is that I'm moving from here along the way. How about you? Really, that's what this series is all about. It's asking you, where are you at with your faith? And as the worship team comes on back, I want you to consider, like the firefighters who responded, it's more than in just what you feel. It's more than in just what you say. Your faith as a byproduct, as the fruit of your relationship with Christ, is measured in the amount of consent that you give. It's in what you do. People are looking at you. They're watching you, how you go through uh, stress, how you're going through turmoil, how you're dealing with, uh, you know, death in the family, how you're dealing with terminal illness. Um, in our prayer circle this morning, someone was talking about his brother-in-law. You know, been going through cancer and doing different things and addictions and, and how he's kind of moving, even in his own language. He talked about praying for the first time ever. So God might be moving in this guy's life. Why? Maybe because he, the brother-in-law, has been able to look at this couple and see that they're willing to put some walk to their talk. They're willing to, to live out this faith that they have. So here it is. How about you? Um, you know, we'll have some prayer for those folks that would want it. But let me, just, let me just put it out to you this way. In your own lives, faith for the other six days is really measured by how much walk you put to your talk. And if you are struggling in particular areas, maybe it's in the area of, of attitudes, you know. Maybe it's in your attitude of pride arrogance, control. Maybe it's in your attitude of what you do say or don't say. Maybe you are looking for the boldness to say more of what you think you ought to say or would want to say. Maybe it's in the area of giving. Maybe it's in the area of believing for somebody's health or healing. Maybe it's in broken relationships. I don't know. But I do know that we're all on this continuum at some point, right? We're all moving. Here's the way to assess it, right? If you're on this continuum and here is absolute disbelief and here you are seeing him face to face and you're, you're putting your reservations in for the marriage supper of the Lamb, where are you? And which way are you facing? Chances are you're facing this way and you're moving somewhere along this continuum. Putting faith into action moves you down that continuum. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we love you this morning. We thank you so much for the book of James and how it instructs us to, uh, to move forward in our faith. Lord, there are some of us that have been Christians for a long time and we understand we're, we're kind of stuck and maybe challenged in some areas and we just like to have a moment with you this morning where we can confess that and ask you to, to draw us to you so that we can move forward closer to you. Maybe there are some of us that don't have that kind of relationship yet to produce that kind of faith, but this morning you're wondering, I would love that kind of faith. How do I get it? You can do what I've done and what many of us here in this room have done, and, and that's really just go to prayer and to ask God for it. All God asks us to do is to recognize that we're outside of where he wants us to be, that our sin has kept us separate from him. And that we confess that to him and say there's a lot of things that we've done that we know we shouldn't have done, that have broken his law, that have made him unhappy, that have crossed over the line from good to bad. And would he forgive us for those? And Christ stands ready today to accept you, to open up his arms and hug you, and to say, I do forgive you. In fact, I said it and did it a long time ago. I put walk to my talk when I hung on the cross for you and gave up my life and shed my blood 
as a sacrifice for you so that you wouldn't have to. If you'll just come into my arms and accept that this morning, of course I will forgive you. And you can begin to enter into that faith and say, wow, I'm really excited to have a relationship with you today. That's really all it is. I would, I would say that if you have prayed that prayer or are going to pray that prayer today with somebody, that you let them know so that they can come alongside you and, and uh, help you out in your walk with Christ. Honestly, folks, here at Echo, we're all about encouraging disciples of Christ, people that will put walk to their talk in extraordinary ways. When they stand up for what they believe, people will understand that they're Christians. If you'd like more boldness, if you'd like to put some extra walk to your talk, would you just make your way down to these altars? Our prayer team will be here to pray with you. We're going we're gonna to just see ourselves through this moment by encouraging, by relinquishing some of our pride and saying, you know what, I really do need to let go of some of these things. Would you just pray with me so I can take that extra step this week and moving away from where I am to where I want to be. I encourage you. If it's in your recovery, it's if it's in your relationships with Christ or with others on this earth, if you need to make that kind of a step, now's the time to do it. For those of you that are just thinking about this and, and really don't have any kind of cement or concrete ways of moving forward, let me just encourage you in this. You all will have an opportunity this week to put some walk to your talk. You will. You'll, in fact, you'll have several. And I would encourage you that if there's been anything that's resonated with you this morning in what I've said, in what the Word has to say, in uh, the kind of faith we've been talking about, that really believing in the truthfulness of God, that God will do the right thing at the right time in the right place, that you'll reflect on that and say, you know, God, I... I, I don't have it. I, I can't do it, but you can. If you'll, if you'll do it through me, I'm willing to submit myself to you and stop being so willful. I'll, I'll do that. If that's the kind of thing that you're looking forward to taking advantage of, I just encourage you to, uh, to do it. 